1991, Michael Jackson penned the lyrics, I'm not going to spend my life being a color. Despite Jackson's emphasis on individualism, it seems increasingly today that people have come to think of their race, whatever it may be, as essential rather than incidental to who they are. Is that fair? Well, consider the foundation against intolerance and racism. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. I'm delighted. I say that every week. Virtually, I'm delighted, but I'm doubly delighted because I have double guests today on Watching America. Uh, firstly, I have Daryl Davis. Now, many of you know him as a, a very successful musician. He's also an actor, performed, been in film work, and he's the author of a book entitled, curiously, Clandestine Relationships, A Black Man's Odyssey in the Ku Klux Klan. Hmm. But he is also a person with a diversified life and a great experience working with many musicians. He worked with Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, B.B. King, Bruce Hornsby, and has also worked with Elvis Presley's The Jordanaires and, uh, and others. But he is more than just simply a musician. He is a Renaissance man in his own right. Uh, he was born in Chicago, Illinois in 1958, and his father actually worked for the State Foreign Service as an officer. And subsequently, he moved around quite a bit. At the age of 10, he returned to the United States and joined an all-white club scout pack in Belmont, Massachusetts. Well, we don't think of that as being an awkward place to be in the Deep South, but ah, you'd be surprised. You see, during a local parade, he was carrying the flag and marching with his troop very, very happily. And suddenly he found himself struck with rocks and bottles thrown from the crowd. Fortunately, the pack leaders formed a protective ring around him. But to say that this was a lasting impression about how life can be is an understatement. Uh, today, he is very concerned about bringing about unity, understanding, and really concentrating on the human aspects of life as we know it. And then my next guest, remember I said this, I'm doubly delighted. My next guest is Brian Bartning. Now, Brian Bartning uh, has established a foundation against intolerance and racism, otherwise known as FAIR. Uh, these two men, their lives have, have basically intersected, and I'm intrigued to have both of them here. But I want to go back, uh, if I can. We'll start with Daryl, if you don't mind, just for a moment. Daryl, that was um, surely a indelible mark in your psyche to be with your friends, having come from abroad, you're in Massachusetts of all places, and then you find yourself assailed with objects being thrown at you simply because of your color. How did that impact you, not only on that moment, but thereafter for years and perhaps decades to come? Oh, yes. I mean, it's still very vivid in my life because, you know, being a son of a foreign service officer, you know, we traveled abroad starting in 1961 at the age of three. And I lived in many different countries and went to international schools. My first exposure to school was overseas. I did kindergarten, first grade, third grade, fifth grade, seventh grade. And my classmates were from Nigeria, Czechoslovakia, France, Germany, Australia, Japan, Russia. Anybody who had an embassy in whichever country to which we were assigned, all of their children went to the same school. Mm. So my classroom was more or less a United Nations of little kids. And that, <laughs> so to me, that was my norm. That was my baseline. Yes. But every time I would return back home to the States, after my, my uh, father's two-year assignment, I would either be in all black schools or black and white schools, meaning the still segregated or the newly integrated. 
And there was not the amount of diversity in my classroom back here in my own country that I had overseas. So literally, I was living about 10 years into the future when I was overseas because that multicultural scenario had yet to come here. Of course, it's here now, but it was not back in the 1960s. So when I was uh, marching with the Cub Scouts, as you pointed out, with, a, with an all-white troop, and suddenly I was being pelted with uh, rocks and bottles by just a small group of, of uh, white spectators in, in the crowd. It wasn't everybody, just a small group. Um, I, you know, my, my first inclination was, oh, those people over there on the sidewalk, they don't like the scouts. That's how naive I was. Mm. You know, I, I didn't realize I was the only one getting targeted mm. until my, my troop leaders and pack leaders came rushing over. And these were, of course, white adults who covered me with their own bodies and quickly escorted me out of the danger. And I kept asking them, you know, why are they doing this to me? I didn't do anything to them. Why are yes. they doing this? Yes. And all they would do is shush me and rush me along, telling me everything would be okay. Uh, well, they never answered my question. So at the end of the parade, at the end of the day, when I returned home, my mother and father were putting Band-Aids on me and getting me all cleaned up and asking me, how did I fall down and get all scraped up? When I explained that I did not fall down and what had happened to get these uh, scrapes, my parents, for the first time in my life, at the age of 10, sat me down and explained what racism was. Now, I know this is hard, hard for some people to believe, but at the age of 10, I had never heard the word racism. I had no clue what they were talking about because that kind of behavior was, was not in my, in my, uh, in my sphere. Uh, that word was not in my vocabulary. I had no reason to know anything about it because I got along with people from all over the world. And so I had no precedent for this. And so literally, I did not believe my parents because my 10-year-old brain could not process the idea that someone who had never seen me, spoken to me, and, and who knew nothing about me would want to inflict pain upon me for no other reason than the color of my skin. It made no sense. And the people who were doing this to me did not look any different to me than my classmates right there in Belmont, Massachusetts, and their parents, or my little French or German or Swedish or Danish friends overseas. So my parents were wrong. Why they were lying to me, I didn't know. But that same year, about a month and a half to two months later, on April the 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Mm. And every major city in the United States burned to the ground, all in the name of this new word I had learned two months prior, racism. So now I understood that my parents had not lied to me. This phenomenon does exist. But what I did not understand was why. Why, do, why are people like that? And at that age, I formed a question in my own mind, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And then for the next 53 years, because I'm 63 now, I have been seeking the answer to that question. Well, I mentioned Belmont, Massachusetts, but um, when you were 10, uh, from about 68, 69, 70, 71, 72, there was a whole hotbed issue in Boston of busing. Yes, uh, indeed. Which, which was a big racial thing that was going on. So and the combat zone. Yeah, absolutely. So certainly uh, Massachusetts was not immune to uh, things which are frankly more reminiscent for most people of Mississippi and Selma and places like that. Uh, you went on to earn a Bachelor's of Music degree from Howard University. And I should point out that you are a pianist and you like the boogie-woogie style, which just endears you to me tremendously because I'm, I'm a big <laughs> fan of that music. Um, uh, when did you consciously, or did you in fact, consciously say, okay, I'm going to have a, a kind of healthy dualism in my life, one in music and another in rectifying hatred and racism? Well, you know, the, the racism and hatred, you know, always fascinated me as to how somebody could think like that. Uh, and, you know, I began to realize that I had traveled extensively, much more than my fellow Americans. In fact, most Americans don't travel very far. Mm. Uh, in fact, most of us don't even have passports. Mm. Uh, and I, you know, now my travel does not make me a better human being than somebody else, but it simply gives me a broader perspective. And so when I would share these perspectives with, with other people who had not had those experiences, you know, they were fascinated. 
And so one night I was playing piano in a uh, country music band and we we're playing at a place called the Silver Dollar Lounge in a town called Frederick, Maryland. And the Silver Dollar Lounge was known as an all white lounge. There were no signs that said blacks could not come in, but it was well understood that black people were not welcome there. And, you know, when you go somewhere where you're not welcome and uh, alcohol is being served, yes. it's not always a good combination, no, right? It's, it's not conducive so, <laughs> to harmony. Right. So yeah. I, I, was, I was the only black guy in this all-white band, and they were established in the area uh, as a country music band that, you know, they had played there before. So here I was in the Silver Dollar Lounge, my first time in there. Uh, the only black person in the band, only black person in the whole lounge. And on the break, I was walking with the band to go sit at the table, you know, with them, take a break after the first set when I felt somebody come up from behind and put their arm across my shoulder and hug me, and I turned to see, you know, who's touching me. Cause I don't know anybody in here. Yes. And it was just a white gentleman, maybe a decade and a half older than me. Mm-hmm. And he had a big smile on his face and he began to tell me how much he enjoyed the music. And then he made a statement. He said, this is the first time I've ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. Now I, I did not find that offensive. But I, w- I was surprised that given this guy being about a decade and a half older than me, yes. that he did not know the black origin right. of Jerry Lee Lewis's <laughs> piano style, Abs- right? Absolutely, yes. And I proceeded to tell him, you know, that Jerry Lee got it from the same place I did, from black blues and boogie-woogie piano players. That's where rock and roll and rockabilly evolved. Did he expect you to play like Floyd Kramer? Well, I, in fact, I did play some Floyd Kramer songs that night, Last Date and all that. Sure. But... Um, you know, I, he, he said he never heard a black guy play like that. And I, so I'm guessing, well, he never saw Little Richard or Fast Domino. Right. It's yeah. the same you know, evolution. Yeah. And I told the guy that, you know, Jerry Lee told me, you know, I'm a good friend of Jerry Lee's. He's told me himself where he learned how to play. Yeah. Well, he didn't believe that either. Yeah. But he was so fascinated, he invited me back to his table and wanted to buy me a drink. Yes. So I don't drink alcohol, but I had a cranberry juice. And he clinked my glass with his glass and cheered me. And then he made another proclamation. He says, you know, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. Now I'm completely mystified. Like, how can this be? Yes. Because at that point in my life, I had sat down literally, literally with thousands of white people and had a meal, a beverage, a conversation. And this guy had never done that. How can this be? So innocently and not facetiously, I asked him why. And he didn't answer me at first. And I, and I asked him again. And he says, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. I burst wow. out laughing because wow. I did not believe him. Yes. You know, why would a Klansman embrace me and praise my talent and want to buy me a drink? It doesn't work that way. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I was laughing because I thought he was joking. And he pulled out his wallet and produced his Klan membership card and handed it to me. And I, I recognized the insignia on there, the logo and all that. And it was it was for real. So I stopped laughing because it wasn't funny anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I gave it back to him. But he was very friendly. And we talked about the Klan and some other things. And he began. He gave me his phone number, wanted, wanted me to call him whenever I was playing there, which I would do. And he would come you know, every time and he would bring Klansmen and Klanswomen to watch what he called the black guy who plays like Jerry Lee. And so, you know, that went on for a while. And then I, I left that band. And a few years later, it dawned on me, Daryl, you blew it. You know, um, you've been the the answer to the question that's been plaguing you since the age of 10. How can you hate me? when You don't even know me. It fell right into your lap. Yes. Who better to ask that question of than someone who would go and join an organization that has over a hundred year history of practicing hating people who don't look like them and who do not believe as they believe get back in contact with that guy and have him, you know, connect you with, with the clan leader and, and interview that guy and write a book because there had been no books written by black authors on the Ku Klux Klan from face-to-face interviews. So that's how that whole thing started. And he it goes ob- on today. He obviously encountered your humanity through the music uh, and was willing to yes. em- embrace you. Um, we tend to think that if we have close association or, or tactile uh, engagement with other people, that it will certainly alleviate hatred. That's not always the case. That's greatly troubling. And I'm sure that that might have been something you've thought about before with your dealings with the people, for instance, in the KKK. Um 
Did you have any disturbing thoughts like that in the midst of talking to this gentleman? I thought thought to yourself, like, okay, he may be fine here, but how am I going to make it to the parking lot? Um, I, I had one little incident uh, in in the room when when I was interviewing him, but I've actually, you know, I've actually had to unfortunately engage in in violence with some of these people in order to protect myself. Hmm. Uh, fortunately, I I prevailed, um, but those incidents have happened few and far between. But yes, there is always that potential because there are people who simply do not like you because of the color of your skin or your religion or your sexual preference or whatever. And they don't want to hear any, you know, what you have to say. You know, you are below them. You are inferior. They are superior. When I was interviewing the gentleman, the, the leader of the clan in the, in the hotel room, uh, he had his armed bodyguard standing right next to him on his right side. And... <clears throat> We were just, you know, talking about this, that, and the other. Some things we agreed upon, other things we disagreed upon. But we were having a civil conversation. And out of nowhere, a very short, uh, very quick and short noise occurred. It sounded like, that was it, just that. And it happened so fast and and did not last, but only a, a split second, that my ear could not discern what the noise was. And so I perceived it to be an ominous noise. I felt that my life was being threatened because I was already told, Daryl, do not fool with this man. He will kill you. And that's what the guy who, um, who, who gave me his contact information, the guy from the Silver Dollar Lounge, had told me. You know, he did not want me to, to fool around with, with his boss because he was concerned for my safety. And so when that noise happened, I knew that he had made the noise because I didn't make it. Mm. So, you know, when you don't do something, you blame it on somebody else. And I jumped up out of my chair and I was ready to dive across the table and attack both uh, the, the, the clan leader and his bodyguard. I was going to grab them both and slam them down to the ground and take away the, the bodyguard's gun because um, I was not armed. My, my secretary who was present was not armed. The only person who I knew for sure who was armed was the bodyguard because you could see his weapon on, on his hip. And I did not know if the clan leader had a weapon up under his suit jacket or not. Yes. And when I came up out of my chair to go across the table, I was looking right into the clan leader's eyes. And I didn't say a word to him. My eyes spoke very loud and clear. They were questioning him. They were saying to him, what did you just do? Well, his eyes had fixated upon my eyes. And I could read his eyes, which were saying to me, what did you just do? And the bodyguard had his hand on, his, on the butt of his gun, which was still in his holster, looking back and forth between both of us like what did either one of you all just do? Well, my secretary realized what had happened. There was a bucket of ice with cans of soda sitting next to her on top of the dresser, and the ice had begun melting, and the cans of soda had begun shifting down the ice, like, that was it. And when she explained that, we all began laughing. And, you know, but, but, but this, this was a, was a teaching moment. Yes. You know, the the learning would come later. There were two lessons taught. One is that we, we all are human beings. Yes. We are on opposite ends of the ideological spectrum. He's a white supremacist. I'm a black guy. All right. But we both showed fear because fear of the unknown, you know, because we, we both were ignorant as to what was causing us to be afraid. And and then, so fear is a human emotion. It made us both human. When the fear was addressed and we realized what the problem was, the fear went away. When the ignorance was cured by education, our secretary educated us, telling us, hey, it's the ice melting in the the bucket and the cans falling down the ice. So when, when that was explained, we all began laughing. We all began laughing at how ignorant we had been. But in reality, somebody could have gotten shot over an ice cube, or I could have pounced across the table and hurt one of them. So the lesson taught is this. Ignorance breeds fear. If you do not keep that fear in check and address it, it will escalate and breed hatred because we hate the things that frighten us. We fear the things of which we are ignorant, and we hate those things which we fear. If you don't address the fear, it in turn escalates into anger and then becomes destruction. We want to destroy those things we hate. Why? Because they frighten us. But guess what? At the end of the day, 
they may have been harmless and we were simply ignorant. Now, it's, it's been my, I've been doing this now for four decades, 37 years to be precise. And what I have observed is we keep addressing this problem the wrong way. We're starting to address things like destruction, addressing the hatred, addressing the fear. We don't need to address those things. Those are symptoms. They are byproducts of the, of the nucleus, the root cause, which is ignorance. If we address the ignorance and cure the ignorance, then there's nothing to fear. With nothing to fear, there's nothing to hate. With nothing to hate, there's nothing to, to destroy. And the good thing is there is, in fact, a cure for ignorance. That cure is called education and exposure. And that's why I am so honored and so proud to be a member of FAIR, because this is what FAIR is all about. By bringing this education, treating people with respect, with humility, allowing people to air their views, and not omitting things, not covering things up, but, but being treating people like, like, like you want to be treated. In all the travel that I've done, uh, I've been to 57 countries between traveling as a child with my parents in the U.S. Foreign Service and now, as you pointed out, a professional musician touring around the world. I, I can tell you something. No matter how far I go from this country, whether it's right next door to Canada or Mexico or halfway around the world, no matter how different the people may be who I encounter, uh, they don't look like me, they don't speak like me, they don't worship as I do or practice the same culture or belief I do. I always conclude one thing. Everybody I encountered is a human being. Mm -hmm. And as such, every human being anywhere from the United States all the way around the world want the same basic five core principles, values in their lives. We all want to be loved. We want to be respected. We want to be heard. We want to be treated fairly. And we want the same things for our family as anybody else wants for their family. And if we learn to employ those five core values, when we find ourselves in a culture or society uh, in, uh, of which we are unfamiliar, even the culture of white supremacy, I can guarantee you our navigation will be much more smooth and much more positive. And this is what one of the, one of the aspects that, you know, that, that, that FAIR seeks to do in their mission to treat people fairly. You know, we don't use the term anti-racist so much. Uh, we use the term pro-human. You know, we don't want to be against a person. The racist is a person. Racism is, is, that, is that belief system. We, we are anti-racism, but not against the person. We are pro-human. So we want to show people a better way. Because, you know, one's, one's perception is one's reality regardless of whether it's real or not, it's their reality. And you cannot change somebody's reality. They have to change that themselves. And, and so, so where other people fall short of doing what FAIR does is they go after a person's reality and try to force their own reality upon that person. It doesn't work. That person is going to put up a wall because they know what's real to them. So what you do is you offer somebody an alternative or a better perception. And if they resonate with your perception, they will change their own reality because one's perception is one's reality. And that's what, you know, we, we seek to do it fair by turning all the cards face up on the table. You know, we have a wide variety of people from different political backgrounds, different races, different persuasions, et cetera. So we have the 360 and we are willing to listen to anybody and everybody and have healthy conversations. A missed opportunity for dialogue is a missed opportunity for conflict resolution. Well, you have provided, Daryl, a wonderful um, transition and segue into uh, speaking with our other guest today, uh, Bayan Bartning. But before I do, I just want to point something which uh, I find quite interesting. We hear about Dr. Martin Luther King, but... People over the last few decades have dropped off the first part of his designation, which is Reverend, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. And here's a man who was a, a Baptist minister. And if you ask the average person on the street, what did Dr. King get his degree in? They don't know. Uh, it's Christian systematic theology from Boston College is what his degree was in. 
And a cardinal and primary point to that was the recognition of people being made in the image of God. Now, whether you subscribe to a deity or not, and you think it's a load of malarkey, it's certainly not an unhealthy thing for people to look at others, no matter what the persuasion, color, orientation, or what have you, as being made in the image of God. And uh, it seems to me that a, a primary part of what you've done by encountering, uh, if you will, those who might be called an enemy, some would say we are to love our enemies, it's been said, uh, you break down the, the barrier of, of unfamiliarity by being tactile, uh, in the case of this gentleman touching you in, in, the, in the club when you were playing the piano, and have avidly sought out to, if you will, have tactile contact with others, looking in the eyes and saying, look, I'm a human being and I recognize you're made in the image of God as am I. Well, with that said, let's now turn our attention to the significant force behind FAIR. A FAIR stands for, again, for the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. And the person who kind of got this all started was Brian Abartning. He has a very interesting story as well. If you're just joining us, this is Watching America. And uh, Brian, I'd like to invite you to tell us how you got involved with this. Uh, everything seemed to converge was uh, the aftermath of the George Floyd protests and what have you. And you had your sons, a daughter and son, I believe, at Riverdale Country School in New York City. And you were quite disturbed by what you saw was being suggested and uh, and promoted. Thank you. Yes. Uh, great to be here. Um, I have two children, as you said, live in Asher and... I want to preface this by saying I am not an activist. Uh, I am not somebody who is uh, who is really focused on politics. So this is all quite new to me. Um, but what I saw happening in my kids' school is uh, in the name of anti-racism, the school rolled out a curriculum and, you know, really embraced an ideology that in every sense of the word to me felt racist and was encouraging children to obsess about the color of their skin, the color of other, other people's skin, um, instead of taking us in, in the direction that in my heart, I have always known is, is the right direction, which is to see our common humanity and to see what brings us together in our commonalities. And for me, this was particularly important and salient because I have brown skin because of my ancestry. My father is Mexican and Yaqui, which is a Native American tribe, and my mother is, is Jewish American. And my children, um, because of their ancestry, because, uh, you know, apparently my, my darker, uh, more melanin-rich skin did not transfer down to my children, have lighter skin um, from my wife, who came to North America as a refugee from the former Soviet Union. Um, and so my kids have a different skin color than me. And so for me, it was quite personal to see my kids' school encouraging my children and other children to see themselves as defined in, in every way and to see their identity as defined by the color of their skin. Because I just, I've always known that's wrong from my personal experience, but I also did not want, did not see any value to, to teaching children to see each other in that way. Okay, so you were, as you've indicated, uh, are, I should say, not were, you still are, uh, half Mexican and um, Yaqui, which is uh, a border tribe found uh, along the border between the United States and Mexico and southwestern regions included. Uh, and your wife was a refugee to this country. Uh, she came from a USSR uh, satellite nation where she was uh, listed as being a Jew, so distinction placed there. So I would imagine, uh, particularly for your wife, uh, she was eager to get away from uh, such uh, separatist indicators. And then you're thrown right into it uh, via your children from the school. When you protested or at least expressed your displeasure, what was the reaction from the school? And again, I need to uh, say that it's it's a Riverdale Country School, uh, an unusual name for a New York City school, but a Riverdale Country School, uh, which was private. And um, they had this agenda and uh, you found disfavor with it for understandable reasons. So I, I raised some questions and I think it really, it's generally speaking as a parent, you're not 
you're not always happy with everything that is happening in your kid's school, but, um, but you're not going to raise a question or concern about every little issue. I think what really caused me to speak up um, or just start to ask questions of the school was um, when I saw the curriculum that was being rolled out, which really lumped people into these political race groups. And, you know, and in particular, I'm half Jewish and Jewish people were defined as being part of the white group, um, which I knew, you know, having brown skin myself, that that was not not true. Not all Jewish people are white. I, I think at that point, I felt the need to speak up. But in particular, there was a, a school assembly right at the start of the school year where young children, my kids at the time were seven and eight. Um, so these were lower school students, ages five to 11, were told to check each other's words and actions. And, and I think that for, for me and my wife, my wife having come from uh, the former Soviet Union where, where group identity defined you and, and where conformity was, was not only encouraged, it was enforced, um, that admonition of young children to check each other's words and actions to make sure everybody was in line with, with the orthodoxy that was being imposed on them um, really concerned me. And so I thought, you know, potentially naively at the time that, that the school had just made a mistake and that they didn't understand what they were saying to these children and that they didn't understand the curriculum that they had rolled out and that they were just trying to do something to respond to the real genuine need to address issues of historical injustice and racism and bias. And these are real issues. Um, and I just thought the school had made a mistake. So, um, so I, at that point, reached out to the school administration and, and did not really get um, much of a response. And, you know, ultimately was actually encouraged by the, by the head of school to, to consider withdrawing our children from the school. Um, you know, I, and just with a reference to being, you know, it's never good to be philosophically misaligned. And I think my wife and I at that point were shocked. It was not, you know, this was not the direction that we thought things would go. We thought that if we just ask questions, raise concerns, you know, based on our own lived experiences, our own worldview, which had not changed from the time that we'd enrolled our children, um, and that to us seemed quite reasonable, uh, you know, it, it really surprised us that we were invited to leave the school if, if we did not agree with, with the, new, the new philosophy. You went on to write an op-ed piece for the Wall Street Journal, uh, the title of which was Dividing by Race Comes to Grade School. And uh, it was through the genesis of this which led you actually to create FAIR as an organization. So uh, did you have self-doubt about doing it? Did you think, okay, this is a bridge too far. I don't know if I want to get involved with this. I have a, a regular life. Interestingly, you describe yourself as not being activist. And, and I say this with reverence and respect. Uh, although you say I'm not an activist, I'm a father, you are in fact really establishing a foundation. So isn't that by definition uh, being an activist? I mean, someone could say, well, you say you're not an activist, but you've, you've established a, um, a foundation. You know, I'm 49 years old and I have never been politically active, have never been an activist Um I, I think yes, but at, at this point, um, I, I prefer to to say that I'm an advocate. You know, I'm advocating for civil rights and liberties and a common culture of fairness, understanding, and humanity. That's the mission of Fair. But um, but I all my life I have viewed my role primarily as being a father. Uh, once I had children and prior to that, just be trying to be a good human being. That's, that's really been my objective in life at this point, having seen what happened with my kids school and really starting to understand that this, this, um, belief system. And, and I think some have referred to it as a, as a religious movement, which has infected my kids school, um, is, is really something that I think we need to come together and, and offer up constructive, as Daryl puts it, pro-human solutions to these, these real long-standing deep-seated issues. Because what this belief system is, is offering is uh, grievance, 
and pessimism and and despair and you know the the way that i look at it it's offering conformity instead of diversity discrimination instead of equity and alienation instead of inclusion and i think we need real diversity real equity and real inclusion and and that's really the focus of fair and we're trying to do that with curriculum um, for children. So curriculum that is honest about historical injustices and real deep-seated inequities in, in this country and, and in other countries, um, but, but also optimistic and realistic about all the progress that we've made and, and where we can get to. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and I am doubly delighted to have two very interesting uh, and important voices on Watching America. Uh, the first of which is Daryl Davis. Uh, you know him as a musician, uh, artist, uh, activist, um, and also the author of a very interesting book called Clandestine Relationships, A Black Man's Odyssey in the Ku Klux Klan. And he is joined with Bayan Bartning, who we've just been speaking with, who is the founder of the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. I'd like to know, gentlemen, how did your lives converge? What was the first thing that happened which caused you to, if you will, intellectually cross-pollinate in the way I guess I would describe it? And so I would uh, speak with Daryl first. Daryl, um, how did you find out about Bayan and his, uh, his organization called FAIR? And what was the attraction? Well, a, a friend of mine uh, had contacted me at Peter Bogassian and was telling me a little bit about Fair and uh, his friend Vine Bartoning. And it sounded very fascinating. You know, I'm always getting uh, emails or calls from different organizations and, and groups, you know, wanting uh, my support or, or my, uh, my membership with them or something like that. And I'm always very cautious. Uh, you know, before I sign on with somebody, hmm. uh, you know, because, you know, I, I've been doing this, as I pointed out, for almost 40 years, and I don't want to 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 be compromised, you know, by by somebody's mission who who may sound good on the surface, but then behind the scenes is something, you know, that I would disagree with and not want to be a part of. Yes. And you know how quickly, you know, you can, your your reputation can be smeared. Right. In a, you know, in a matter of seconds on social media. Um so I, I've always been very cautious. And uh, the more I looked into FAIR, you know, it aligned, you know, right with, with what I want to do. And so I was very happy that Peter had made the, uh, the connection for me. And uh, Bayan and I hit it off. And here we are. What are your hopes for the foundation? Where do you want to go next uh, with it? And, and what do you see as the, if you will, antidote to what, from your perspective, would be kind of a social poisoning that's taking place? Well, I'll let Bayon answer that. But for, for me, uh, you know, we have come up with, you know, fair diversity. We've come up with uh, educational programs, K through 12, which I have always said, always said that we need to begin teaching this kind of thing, you know, in the beginning of school, while, while children's minds are sponging information, give them this kind of thing. Don't, don't make it the taboo that, you know, that has been in our school system for so long. Like, for example, as I pointed out, I, I am 63 years old. When I was in high school, uh, we did not learn about, the, about the, um, the, the internment camps here in the United States for Japanese Americans. That There was nowhere in our textbooks. Our teachers did not talk about it. I, I never heard it until I was in college. And when our teacher was telling us about it, I did not believe him. You know, I'm, I was like, what? You got to be kidding me. How come I, I haven't heard about this before? And I asked my parents and they said, yes, you know, it's true. And I was furious that I had not learned that. Now, of course, today, kids in school do learn it. Uh, but the Tulsa race riots are still not in the textbooks. I knew about that 30 years ago. Hmm. You know, um, and people are just now coming to, 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 to see that there are big, not just small, but big chunks of our history that have been purposely omitted from our history. And this is a disgrace and, and a disservice to, uh, to the educational system, especially with our youth, because we all need to learn these things about our country, about our fellow human beings, et cetera, so that we can make better uh, informed decisions and be more educated, become more well-rounded. And FAIR has put together this program 
uh, K through 12, K through 12, kindergarten through, through, uh, through senior, you know, and this I think is phenomenal. It's something that, that I've wanted to see for a very long time. In fact, in New Jersey, uh, I speak in New Jersey every year. Every, I've been doing it now for about 10 or 12 years. They have programs uh, at, at, in some of the middle schools where they bring in 30 different speakers for a whole day. And, and the, all, the, all the kids get to go to see, you know, whichever three or four they want to see. They bring in uh, Sudanese uh, former slaves, uh, Rwandan genocide survivors, Holocaust survivors, uh, myself talking about race relations, um, 9-11 responders, survivors from Sandy Hook or Columbine, uh, all kinds of different people, people who were former gang members or who've been victimized by gangs. And these, these middle school kids get to, get to see, you know, something that they don't see in their sphere. You know, where, you know, where have you seen a lost boy uh, uh, from Sudan in New Jersey? They're, they're at, the, at this middle school telling their stories. And, and, and let me tell you something, Dr. Campbell, these stories are so important for people with a young age because I'll give you an example. This has happened to me four times. I lecture all over the country and around the world. And this has happened to me four times where uh, I've given a lecture at a middle school and, uh, and say over here on the East Coast. And then I have um, years later, I'm, I'm lecturing in Fargo, North, literally Fargo, North Dakota to a college. And this kid comes running up to me. He's a sophomore. And he says, hey, you spoke at my middle school. I'm the one who told the Student Activities Board about you. That's why you're here. Wow. So something I said in middle school <laughs> stuck with that child. Yes. And, and, and he carries it into college. I know that kid will carry that mission the rest of his life. He'll raise his kids that way. It opened their eyes and exposed them to different things. My favorite quote of all time is called the travel quote by Mark Twain. And uh, Mark Twain said, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. So I am just thrilled that you know, today we don't have to, I mean, it's nice if you, if you can travel, go across the Atlantic Ocean or Pacific Ocean to some other country, but we have a tool at, 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 at the tips of our fingertips, you know, the, the internet, we can travel virtually mm. uh, and learn about other things and bring those to the classroom. Well, firstly, Daryl, I'd like to consider you my friend, so please call me Alan. Um, Alan, thank you. <laughs> uh, and the, the same applies for Biden as well. Um, I was struck by a quote that I thought about from a lyric uh, some years back. It was actually Michael Jackson. And one of his songs, the lyric goes, I'm not going to spend my life being a color. But it seems to be uh, the only thing that's offered up now on the plate before us, and certainly for our, for our young people, the issue is telling the truth, and it seems to me that you're striving for that to be implemented in the schools, to acknowledge wrong in history, but also not to demonize those who have not had any direct participation. Um, do people get it, or do you have opposition from the most unlikely sources, people who actually say that they're advocates for for peace and harmony and understanding, when in fact they may just try and subvert the very true message that you're trying to offer? I think we, we definitely have um, well-intentioned people who, who are advocating for what some would call race consciousness, which is that obsession with, with skin color. In 2016, there was a study published called Hidden Tribes by an organization called More in Common. And it's a lengthy study that's looking at just the polarization within the United States. And one of the pieces of information that really jumped out at me is, uh, is the percentage of Americans for whom their race defined as skin color is important to them. And for Americans of European ancestry, the, the percentage was 13%. Um, and, and the political views of that 13% were 
somewhat consistent with what some would call a white nationalist um, worldview. And one of the concerns that that I have with um, with this trend toward race consciousness or teaching children to see themselves and see their identity as defined by the color of their skin is uh, is the ultimate goal is to turn that 13% into something closer to 100%. And and I don't I don't think that it's it's realistic to say that increasing race consciousness and reinforcing the 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 fake social construct of race when we are all part of the same human race is is going to ultimately make our society a better place i think it will have the opposite effect so i think there are well-intentioned people who are advocating for race consciousness and advocating against a more colorblind approach who I think are are really playing with fire because I I think that race consciousness um, is something that ultimately can lead to tribalism and division, and it's the opposite direction of where we want to go. We want to move forward toward a pro-human future where people see each other as fellow human beings and where they don't see each other as defined by the amount of melanin in their skin. Uh, what do you do when you have persons who perhaps with their own pockets uh, profit greatly by by sowing discord? How do you deal with that frustration? And I'm going to direct this to Daryl first. By immediately pointing it out, you know, and yes, you know, you will you will suffer backlash and things like that from, you know, from non-believers and deniers. But you must point it out immediately. Like I said, turn all the cards face up on the table. Call it what it is. Okay, buy-in. I mean, I think this is part of the reason I am so honored and grateful to be working with Daryl. Uh, I think Daryl has been working very closely with people who disagree with him and actually start off hating him. So I, I think that 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 approach of really embracing others is is important and i think um it doesn't mean that you you don't stand up for what's right that you don't stand up for your principles and and speak your truth but um but i, I think that ultimately the the solution here is not to demonize other people it's it's to embrace embrace other people. And, and yes, are there going to be people who are uh, really intent on, on sowing discord and uh, chaos and division? Um, of course. But, but I think that if you react to that in an aggressive way, um, in an aggressive tribal way, then, then you become part of the problem. You know, um, I'll, I'll just dovetail into that. You know, you, you made the uh, Michael Jackson quote, um, <clears throat> Jimi Hendrix, you know, the late great uh, yes. guitarist, yes. uh, also has a very uh, famous quote. And, and Hendrix said, and I quote, when the power of love overcomes the love of power, the world will know peace. Yes. Wow. That is something to chew on. Let me just say that um, uh, in particular, Daryl, there seems to be a proven technique on your part of gaining the ear of those who would be uh, diametrically opposed to not only who you are, but what you might believe in, and, and so on and so forth. What is the first step to sitting down across the table with somebody who disagrees with you? You mentioned Peter Bogosian. He's a friend of this show, I'd like to think. And uh, one of the things he said was, we've lost nuance. There's no nuance in arguments anymore. Everyone's just categorically angelic or demonized. Um, okay, well, you said, um, yeah, how do I get the ear of those people? Well, yes. it's basically, is very, very simple. Um, before getting their ear, I have to give my ear because as I pointed out, the universal principles, every, everybody wants to be loved. They want to be respected. They want to be heard. So I am willing to sit back and listen, listen to what somebody has to say, even though I may think, you know, it's, it's a bunch of malarkey and I, and I know it not to be real because I've been to those places. I've dealt with those people, uh, you know, where the person telling me how somebody is, is, based upon their own speculation, having never dealt with somebody or never been to those countries or something. 
Um, so, but I, yet I will sit back and I will listen because people want to be heard. And when you allow somebody to be heard, they have more respect for you uh, because you've given them a platform. And now they're, they feel compelled to reciprocate. So that's when they give you their ear. So I'm willing to give my ear in order to get theirs. How can people get in touch with FAIR, the Foundation Against uh, Intolerance and Racism? Where would they go on the internet? Well, they can go to fairforall.org. That's F-A-I-R-F-O-R-A-L-L.org. Fairforall.org is the website, and they can contact any of us there. On this program, I always look for people who add to America and certainly uh, don't detract from it. And you are adding to it greatly, the two of you. Um, I hear very solid sound voices of concern and that the two of you want to invest yourselves in major parts of your life in trying to amend that which is uh, wrong or erratic or, or certainly uh, unstable. And for that, as a American by choice, British by birth, I want to thank both of you. Thank you so much for being a part of Watching America. I've been speaking with Bayan Bartning, who is the creator, founder of the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, otherwise known as FAIR, and also Daryl Davis, the musician, activist, actor, uh, renaissance man, the author of the book Clandestine Relationships, A Black Man's Odyssey in the Ku Klux Klan. Gentlemen, thank you so very much for being a part of this show. I wish you uh, great success in your endeavors, and God bless you both. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. It's been Thank terrific. You, Alan. Hey, going out on your music, do you have a recording of yours that you'd like us to go out on? Oh, that'd be great. Uh, you mean me? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, no, me. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely doesn't want my music. Uh, uh, sure. Hop a tune, Brian. Okay. <laughs> America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.